Welcome to the Truth Exchange podcast, the unique program where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 125. We have exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. I'm your host, Joshua Gilo. I have a special guest with me, Andrea Williams. Great to be with you. Andrea is the CEO over at Christian Concern. Here's a little video clip that I uh, that they've pulled together. I hope that this would encourage everyone. Christian Concern is passionate about seeing the love, justice, truth, freedom and hope of Jesus at the heart of society. We know that Jesus is Lord of all. That doesn't just mean in our personal lives, but in our churches, in the courts, on the television and in parliament. So we seek justice defending Christian freedoms in the legal system and campaigning for just, righteous laws. We speak truth, taking every opportunity to champion the goodness of God's pattern for our lives, our families and our society on television, radio, online and in the newspapers. And we bring hope, helping the world to see how much better things can be when we live in line with God's beautiful design for our lives. Well, I pray that the church would recognize what they have in Christian concern. Almost four years now, I've been fighting to clear my name, and I'm really excited today that the judges finally ruled in my favor. I would never forget when I came into the office, and there were five people there, and they were looking at my notes at all. They've taken this a little bit seriously. That was the first ray of hope I had. Christian concern, as we have just discovered, is very aware of some of these cultural issues and is very much involved in the lives of believers, uh, specifically in the UK. And Dr. Jones has invited Andrea to be a part of our upcoming symposium, and he has introduced this symposium with a couple of questions, and he says this, What are your pronouns? How do you identify? These current cultural questions are a restatement of one of the oldest questions of the human race, Who am I? Today's answers carry a beguiling temptation to define ourselves by looking within, Whereas the older version implies that we should look outside ourselves, asking our Creator to tell us what we need to know. Whether in the church, or the White House, or at home, or in our nation's schools, many in our culture, including Christians, are facing an identity crisis. This fall, the Truth Exchange will be having a symposium, Stolen Identity, the Theft of the Binary in Contemporary Society. Andrea, you have been tasked with the subject of law and personhood specifically the issue of identity politics and how they're being played, particularly in the British and European context, and how that's going to affect Western culture in general. Andrea, wouldn't it be fair of me to dump into that part of it without asking the question that we get so often at Truth Exchange, is it really important for Christians to be involved in public policy, the issues of law and church? Shouldn't we keep government out of the involvement of the church? And shouldn't the church just keep its nose out of the state? How do you respond to those kind of questions? Absolutely not. Never has the truth of the gospel uh, been more under attack than in the public space. 
And there's a sense in which that's therefore where God's people absolutely need to be, where the church needs to be giving a robust and strong and secure answer for the hope that is within us, for the truth that actually says, yes, we are made in the image of God. Yes, we are made male and female. Yes, there is truth to be known. Yes, there is clarity rather than confusion. And that is something that the world currently is longing to hear, that the Western world is longing to hear, indeed, that the political classes need to hear. And we need to send that out with a very clear sound. I feel that sometimes as Christians, we have become so kowtowed, so silenced by the political class and by the the general melee of culture uh, that we no longer have confidence in the truth. Uh, that is uh, that is found uh, so powerfully um, in in Romans one, so powerfully across the gospel. No longer have the confidence in that to really speak it uh, when it when of course it is exactly what the world needs to hear. Do you think that that lack of uh, courage in the face of the cultural shift and in the public square is is that just is that just a lack of Christians knowing the scriptures? Uh, or even believing false things about what, how they should be involved. I have heard often, we don't need to bring the scriptures into the discussion. We have natural law. We can look at creation itself. And that would tell you enough that there should be male and female in marriage. That should tell you enough about the rights of the life of, a, of children inside the womb. Don't, we don't need to bring the Bible into this discussion. Well, really, it's because we've forgotten the Bible. It's because we've forgotten Jesus, forgotten that he rules and reigns. We've forgotten that he is the king of kings and the Lord of laws. Forgotten that he, in him, is the the power to restore all things unto himself. And it's the power of the gospel in which there is hope. And we have diminished the gospel. We've allowed the gospel to become one truth among many in the public space. It's as if we aren't really proud of the gospel, as if we don't feel that it really has anything to offer to the general public at large, when in fact we know that what it uh, is, is the answer to all the ills of society right now. And natural law is not enough. And being uh, having conservative values just in and of themselves is not enough. Mm. What matters essentially is the lordship of christ what matters essentially is whether or not the church really loves him whether or not the church is really zealous for his truth whether or not the church is really prepared to lay herself on the line for his truth where it is under attack in contemporary society at this time and sadly i would say for the last half a century it's as if we've not being prepared to do that. We've not seen the attack on truth coming. We've been too quick to want to appeal to the world, to kowtow to the world, to shy from the world and allow other other versions of uh, contemporary truth to make their way into the public space as new political orthodoxy around which if you, in the end, uh, dare to question or resist, you find yourself uh, as a minimum uh, at the end of being labelled bigoted or hateful and certainly in the UK uh, finding yourself pretty o- quite often in trouble, uh, trouble in your workplace. 
if you mm. dare to question the new political cultural orthodoxy. Yeah. You know, I when I hear about post-Christian UK, I always can hear our friends Joe Boot or P. Andrew Sandlin or Jeffrey Ventrella who would say, no, we're not in a post-Christian time. We're in a pre-Christian time. That the light of the gospel will come back into the UK like it was, if not greater. Um, having said some of those things, and those are, those are very, very helpful, Andrea, your topic is going to be dealing with the issue of law and personhood. And I would wondered if you could help our audience. Well, let's define some terms. What does it mean to be a person, or what is personhood, and how is that changing in in the understanding of of law? And certainly, how has that changed in culture today? Well, what's absolutely fascinating is that. Once upon a time, these things, and not so long ago, and I qualified as a barrister in 1988, but once upon a time, that would have seemed almost to be a nonsensical question. What is personhood? Well, you are a man, and I am a woman, and we are persons. And life is worthy of protection from the moment of conception to the point of natural death. And once upon a time, those concepts a personhood, bodily integrity, male and female, those things were just understood. They didn't even need to be written. They weren't legal fictions, legal concepts. They were simply truth. And I think that this is one of the things that we need to understand. You only begin to have to make a lot of laws around which you make a whole lot of other laws um, uh, when there is no law. There's a sense in which when it's become lawless or when you have to begin to define matters, you've got you've you've got into a post-war or you've got into a a post-law or a post-chaotic age. Mm. So in the 1980s, we didn't really have to define what a person was as distinct from the rest of living creatures as a, as opposed to an animal or you know they, those right. sorts of things were i mean but i mean it's, and what Matt, what was protected was life the concept of life from the moment of conception to the point of natural death and i mean how far that has shifted in that um some of you will know my story but i've um for the last 10 years had um had cancer, had cancer come back again, um, and it's and, and it retreat. And the, the truth is, and I'm right now I'm doing very well, but I'm I'm therefore on regular checkups, and one of them is with my gynecologist because my cancer, my breast cancer moved to the womb, and so that's so, so I have to quite often go to my gynecologist. And I'm just saying this because this morning I had a letter from the clinic where. The secretary um, to my consultant gynecologist gave her pronouns as she and her. So uh, the, the absurdity um, in, in Britain is we've now got to a place whereby a women's clinic, a gynecology clinic, um, in its letter, in its letters, in its formal letters, has she and her. Mm. Uh, similarly, earlier this week, we've had correspondence with our education department here in the United Kingdom, where again, whereby the signatories on the letters uh, define their pronouns. So the 
you get into a place whereby in public, it, on official correspondence, even on medical correspondence, you're getting to that point whereby people are defining, um, defining themselves according to their pronouns. So in law, there's a battle for, in law, there is a battle for what it means to be male, what it means to be female. There's a battle within the equalities legislation uh, around that. It's no longer necessarily defined by biology. And uh, we in March of 2022 here in the United Kingdom have an important case in the High Court whereby a doctor who refused to say on a medical form that a biological man was a woman because they wanted to identify that found, and this was only a, a an in theory question, actually lost his job um, as a government physician. Is this the, the Michael, uh, Michael Davidson case? That's the, that's the David Makareff, that's the David Makareff case. Okay. The Mike Davidson case is, um, that's all around access. That's, that, that is a case where someone who gives help to people who want to move away from same-sex attraction, all of his bank accounts are being closed, his license has been taken away. The very fact that he says that you can do this has happened. One of, we won a very important matter of law in one of Mike Davidson's cases back in 2013, where in our Equality Act, sexual orientation, which is a nebulous legal concept, because actually what it defines is your sexual practice. Yeah. But there is a, it's, it's called sexual orientation as if it's fixed and as if it is innate. And it was in a Mike Davidson case whereby we got it recognized in the jurisprudence in a judgment in that case, that ex-gay was also a protected characteristic. So wow. we at least got it recognized in law that, that there was such a legal class. Because what um, the push was in fact to render ex-gay invisible in, in effect as non-existent. Yeah. In the public space. So what so going back to the original question, um, the fact that we begin to have to define or that people are self-defining. Mm -hmm. um, means that we've got to a place whereby law can hardly contain the problems that come as a result of that. that that's actually the, the truth about it. And these new concepts, these new self-definitions of male and female or other, are actually very often policy decisions, not hard law definitions or hard medical definitions. And then you have to, the law then has to play catch up with trying to make sense of what policy decisions, soft law decisions um, work out as in the public space. So do you see a lot of injustices then being dealt because of the game of catch up? Absolutely. I mean, so we had one of the very first cases here in the United Kingdom now some six years ago whereby children in primary school, six and seven-year-olds, um, two little boys, wanted to go into school dressed as girls. Mm -hmm. um, and the whole school was changing its gender policies, its sex policies, sex policies around it, its toileting policies, its sports policies. And a Christian couple that were concerned about this, excuse me, <coughs> Nigel and Sally Rose, sought to raise this with the head they received a letter back from the head, essentially to say that unless they accepted 
the child, the six-year-old child's preferred pronouns, they were transphobic. And that yeah. unless their children were prepared to accept it, that they were transphobic. And a transphobic means an unwillingness to accept the uh, self-defining characteristic of the trans person. And so that, that was something that we, we've actually only just some six years later got that case into the court because at the time, no medical person, although they would come and speak to us quietly and say, we're totally with you, no medical person would stand with us mm. six years ago. The tide has shifted since then. Right. Um, but what you've seen, and, and since that time, we've actually seen um, an explosion of children identifying in the opposite gender. And even in that school, more children confused and so on. Do you think, uh, or do you, what's your guess on this? It, it, as we see this rise of interest of children coming out and self-identifying, changing the way they view themselves, is this a groomed thing that, that has been going on without parental supervision through programs, uh, through school inf influence, even the, the, the culture of their, their neighbors who are involved with some of this, this type of thing. And we're just seeing more and more and, and it's just it's just snowballing or, or is there something else that's kind of going on? It absolutely is. There is absolutely a contagion thing and it's um, very contemporary. It's very real. The numbers are increasing exponentially by thousands of percent in these recent years. And a demographic that we've seen a massive increase in is amongst teenage girls. Mm. Uh, and we also have and, and the chest binding and the taking of testosterone and even early, uh, early double mastectomies. So this is, this is quite gruesome. It's real. It's here. And we are beginning to see the fallout of that. We're actually now being beginning to see some detransitioning cases um, mm. and those and some quite high-profile detransitioning cases. So I think that those are to come. As the mother of four children aged between uh, 19 and 27, something that's interested me um, over this period, and it really is only anecdotal in, 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 many, in, in many senses, is that when my 27-year-old was going through school, there were some girls who had anorexia or bulimia. And that was something that we talked about a lot. Mm -hmm. By the time I, and we did not hear of anyone being trans or confused about their, their gender. Mm. By the time my 19 year old uh, was going through high school, there were several girls that were, well, and boys, but mainly girls that were confused about their gender. Yeah. Um, and, we were not hearing us so much about the um, eating disorders. They're still there, of course. But I think that that's quite an interesting phenomenon. Also, the, the phenomenon of just the way in which the way in which young people are identifying. Again, the shift in terms of how young people are identifying. You'll see, you'll hear, we're hearing of eleven-year-olds identifying as bisexual, right? When they go to high school, even being asked to. I, even being asked by the school how they identify in terms of sexual orientation. So the point, so I think that what you've got again is this point about policy. It's not hard law that's dictating it, but when you've got sex education policy saying in our schools, saying in United Kingdom schools, 
that the, the, the school curriculum says that we have to teach our children these things um, mm. as a matter of sex or relationships education, then what we are in effect doing is introducing concepts to our young children, age four, age five, age six, and, and we keep on repeating these concepts as yep. they go up uh, and repeating and cementing these concepts as they go up. So we're actually, as part of state education, are inculcating um, mm. our children in this confusion, stuff that they really don't need to hear. Yeah. And if teachers dare to question here in the UK, then they find themselves in trouble in the disciplinary process within school. Are you, the Equality Act as bre breaching diversity codes. Are you following fairly close some of the cases that are coming uh, here in the, in, the, in the United States and then in, in Canada? And are we, and if so, are we right behind you guys? Are we ahead of you guys on this curve? Or I would say that we've been the leading liberalizing Western nation. So we're looking and, to you. And I would say that we have. We in the United Kingdom, I've been here for, I qualified in 1988 and I've been pretty much um, doing this work since the mid nineties. Um, and it didn't, was not coming thick and fast then, but it was beginning to come. But back in the, at the turn of the century, we'd maybe have three, four, five big cases a year where we are dealing with that kind of, we're dealing with that sort of number of cases every week um, at the moment. And it's a tsunami. Yeah. And, uh, I used to think that when the teacher loses their job or when the pastor loses that, when the street pastor is locked up, when these things happen, the church will awaken. <coughs> Excuse me. But that hasn't happened. I sought yeah. to sound the signal. We've sought to sound the signal to other nations. And I would say that in the States, some of your states are kind of right where we are. Um, but I, I've not noticed that you have quite as many egregious cases. You have egregious cases but not quite as many, but some, there is some resistance in America. I feel that there's still some resistance, mm. particularly in some states in America, whereas in the United Kingdom and in, the West, in Western Europe generally, there is very little resistance. Where we've seen some resistance um, in, the, in the West is with these amazing Central and Eastern European states, such as Poland, such as Hungary, and indeed even Ukraine, where you've, we've seen pro-family policies, pro-life policies, where we've seen men and women at the heart of government really seeking to protect life and promote family and to stop the LGBT tide in schools. Now, ironically, they have been sanctioned by the European Union. They have been name-called, um, they have been targeted, but they understand their own identity. They also understand Marxism. They understand totalitarianism and they don't want a thought system imposed upon them. And so they are resisting. And I'm praying that in these nations, we see something really bright and beautiful emerge in terms of truth and in terms of truth of governance and in terms of um, good law um, in, the, in the days and years um, and weeks and months to come. Mm. So, just to say, having said that, when I said that we were further ahead, there are some stories coming out of Canada, which it's as if Canada was behind us and is potentially like it's leapfrogging. So mm. the kind of locking up of pastors um, 
this stuff around conversion therapy, I feel as if they may have leapfrogged. And I don't know where the Christian resistance is there. I don't know where the Christian legal resistance is. I see, I've seen very little of it. Mm. And it makes me very concerned. Yeah. I'm a father of five. And my oldest is 11. Yeah, the Lord is so good. And uh, I, I pray for more. And um, yes, uh, my my oldest is 11. And he had told me the other day that the little girl down the street whom he and, and his brothers play with quite often, and she's just maybe a year or two y- years younger than, than he is. And he told me the other day, he said, Pop, my friend is telling me that she wants to marry a girl when she grows older and uh and that she that she identifies as a boy and my instant reaction is son that's silly which i wound up saying and i said what what how does god make us and we went back to genesis 1 and then we talked about the fall. We talked about the hope of the gospel. We talked about Romans 1. Now, I may have some, some privilege right now where I'm, no one's knocking on my door to cart me off to jail or bring a lawsuit to me. Um, but what would you get? What kind of advice do you give to parents who have children and they're coming home from school or from a friend's house and they're telling their mom and dad, they're identifying as Zizim, or do you do you just tell them you need to ignore that nonsense and you call them what they are, or is there more of a pastoral way of approaching this? How how would you advise a situation like that? Well, I think that it um, depends where you are in the situation. So there's obviously a pastoral response, there's obviously a local response, there's obviously a relational response, but the truth response of the church is that we need to, in a very public way. And in a, a public way that stands with our, uh, with our pu- or either against or speaking to the public authorities to say, um, we raise our children, our children may, are male and female, we will not have this stuff promoted in our schools. Mm. And I say to churches, we need, the children belong to the families, our families, and then they belong to, you know, then they belong to our Christian community. And what we can't do is hand them to a state which would teach them falsehoods about who they are. Mm. And so I think I'd be saying, so I think that it's really important that Christian schools in the United States stay really Christian, that they don't allow the state to dictate to them how they teach what it means to, means to be made in the image of God, what yes. it is to be male and female. And I think that we need to keep on teaching it and keep on speaking it. And, you know, Hungary is going to an election in about two or three weeks time now in, in, in March, is going go to an election whereby on the referendum, there's a referendum that says that LGBT ideology will not be promoted in schools. And the mm-hmm. whole nation is voting on this mm-hmm. because the party has brought that to the nation. Um, there's been a massive cultural fight around it, but they've actually had the courage uh, to do that. And so, what I would say is we have to fight back back at a public and policy level, and we must resist, of course, pastorally and with the family. It's we need to love and be compassionate and be gentle, but the loving thing to do still means to speak the truth. 
And yes. if that child is age nine, then that child really doesn't know um, that, that if, if the child's a, a girl and saying that she's a boy, well, that's the thing a nine-year-old might say. And mm. how can a nine-year-old say she wants to marry uh, another girl? The only thing that would even put that, put that into her head is a society that's gone awry, a yeah. society that's gone wrong. The only thing that would even give a child that kind of concept yeah. is because a poisonous lie is getting into the root of the culture. And mm. that's what we have to root out and speak against. And we have to do it boldly and compassionately, uh, knowing that, that in, in that lies the healing of a nation. Mm. In that lies, in, in that, you know, that's the truth. And we, we need to speak it. You know, in the UK now, if you are a parent that resisted that situation and were reported by someone else, you could find your children being taken away from you. We are finding ourselves in situations whereby young children are identifying one sex at school and if the parent resists, they are visited by social services, even the police. So it's really quite, ser it's really quite serious. If uh, pastors or if sports teachers or others won't recognize the child in their chosen gender, then they may find themselves in trouble. Yeah. With authorities. But we have to collectively resist. We have to have the courage to do so. And again, this has really come about through soft law, not hard law. Mm. So, because technically, legally in the United Kingdom, the civil partnership, the, sorry, the Gender Recognition Act says you cannot change your sex mm. unless you're over 18, have lived out in the opposite sex for two years. Uh, that Only at that point can you be legally recognised as someone in the opposite sex. And that's the hard law? That's the hard law. Okay. But we are, but, but there are many cases um, and our medical system, even our, our school education policies, all of these things follow um, a system whereby everyone assumes that if you say age six, age nine, age 11, that you've changed your gender, that you've changed your gender. Right. Is that hard, hard law to protect that person uh, that's self-identifying and changing uh, well, one from the ramifications of that kind of decision. The get, law it's a very, I mean, in many ways, it's an old piece of legislation now because it dates right back to 2004. Okay. And it hasn't, and it hasn't been changed. Um, so it's somebody that is an adult over 18, lived out in the opposite sex for two years so that they can have their, essentially it's practical. It's so that their passport can change and their driving license can change. Um, because it's a settled wish. Here in the states, there's there is work being done so that schools can aid students in transition therapy, whether it be through drugs or even up to surgery. Is that kind of uh, those type of steps being taken in the UK? Absolutely, they are. And you, so we're getting puberty suppressants. But again, can we can you? Just imagine uh, that situation whereby 10, 11 year old, 12 year old children are making decisions which will affect the, yeah. the rest of their life. Yeah. I mean, many people would call that child abuse. Yeah. And of course, the, and of course the kind of thing that we are seeing 
as I said, we're beginning to see the detransitioners. So yeah. we're beginning to see the medical cases. We, um, we, Mary Weller, who's on staff with Truth Exchange and I, we've, we've done a, a few podcasts on the subject of, of transgender and the whole transition. And there is one young man, his name is Jazz Janner. I don't know if yes. you're familiar. Yes, yes, yes. And the horrid thing from the age of three, and they start to give him uh, puberty wow. blockers. And then when he was old enough for the, the, uh, the reassignment surgery and the botched surgeries, and this, the, the, it's just such a sad story. And that, it's a, that, that story is, it is like a, a real time catastrophe, isn't it? Yes. As you see jazz life unfold now, from looking actually quite pretty in a sense when young. Right. But but now you have but but the whole family going along in this. But now as you see jazz living out life in the public space, and the evident, uh, I mean, there's just it's just evident the unease, the unhappiness, yeah. Yeah. the trauma. Right. You know, you kind of you've so evidently got comorbidities going on at the moment. I think there's you know massive obesity going on at the moment, mm-hmm. and it's just catastrophic and sad. Yeah. And there's going to be story after story just like that one. Yeah. And and it's sad because that's a bit suppressed, isn't it? It's suppressed through the media. Yeah. No one touched that. Oh. I can tell you, uh, Joshua, what would be wonderful to have on this podcast is we can bring to you um, an, the story of an amazing detransitioner. Named, her name is Libby Littlewood. She works with us at Christian Concern and X Out Loud. But it was just great to hear um, her story. And also num- increasing numbers of people that have moved out of, you know, homosexuality and just the freedom that they find in the gospel. And they all say... What Libby says is the church should have told me the church shouldn't have gone along with it. It was as if the church had nothing to say to me. And I, it was only me figuring it out with God myself that I realized that I really wasn't a boy. Mm. I would love to on the program. That would be great. We should really set that up. Yeah, Yeah. Let's do that. That would be fantastic. Well, and speaking of fantastic, Andrew, you have been fantastic. Thank you for coming on the program today. And great thank you for you. all the great work that you are doing. Is there anything that you would like to leave with us as far as things that we could keep you in prayer or any information about Christian concern that listeners should know about? Well, do it'd be great to just have you on our mailing list, you know, sign up online at Christian Concern forward slash hello. Uh, just because it's great. Um, to have our friends in America with us and also so that we can warn you I believe of stuff that's coming up for you the stuff you we're slightly ahead so really living out a lot of this incredible thought leadership that you do at Truth Exchange I think that here in the Britain we're kind of really living it for real on the hard edge Um, I love being with the wonderful Peter and Rebecca Jones um, and just really sitting under their leadership and under their teaching now over so many years. It's just, it's just like beautiful diamonds. It's like pearls. It's, it's, it's the best wisdom, the best teaching. And I really absorb it. 
And I, I suppose I cherish it so much because so often uh, we are here at Christian Concern and the Christian Legal Centre on the front line, doing the battles, helping the teachers, the doctors that are in trouble, contending in Parliament against uh, bad laws. So thank you so much for your partnership and for your friendship. And I look forward to being with you soon at the conference. Great. God bless, Andrea. Thank you so thank much. You.